You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. As a rule, TV can't do comedy well. It's one thing to take a comedian with built-in humour, people are waiting to laugh at him. It's another matter to take a one-hour comedy script, particularly broad comedy. There's a total lack of spontaneity or the part of the audience. Comedy is something you've got to share with the people. Believe it or not, these aren't the words of someone critiquing tonight's episode of The Twilight Zone, but they are actually the words of Rod Serling in a pre-Twilight Zone interview from 1956 to reporter J.P. Shanley, which was then documented by Martin Grams Jr. in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. We have to remember that television was still a relatively young medium at this point, And while Rod Serling could be so prophetic about so many things, this is something he would be proven wrong about time after time, as television produced more and more classic comedy over the years. But I think we can forgive him this oversight. But the big question is, if this is what he believes about television comedy, why was it something that he went back to time after time on the Twilight Zone. Perhaps the best way to explore that is to step into a world that Rod Serling knew very well. Say, how about if it was a science fiction piece? This rocket man makes a promise to his girl never to go up in a spaceship again. Julius, you've been here all morning. I'll give you this, I've been an agent for 23 years and I've never heard of so many variations of the same story. So I have to put it up to you. I really simply have to put it up to you. Why in the world do you persist? Can you answer me? Why do you persist? Why don't you go back to doing what you did before? A streetcar conductor? Mr. Hugo, it's like progress. There ain't no more streetcars. Besides, I get travel sickness. Let me put it to you this way. And number one, you will never make a writer. Number two, you'll starve to death if you try. And number three, you're wasting your time, my time, producers' time, everybody's time. The battles between writers and producers, between advertisers and writers, these are battles that Rod Sailing knew only too well. But tonight, he'll add to that mix a hint of Twilight Zone magic, or I guess, black magic. Because when a clueless aspiring television writer gets a chance to pitch a television show about black magic, he decides to fill the gaps in his knowledge by researching the subject. But how's he going to fill the gaps in his talent? Well, to do that, he and we have to meet the bard. You've just witnessed opportunity, if not knocking, at least scratching plaintively on a closed door. Mr. Julius Moomer, a would-be writer, who, if talent came 25 cents a pound, would be worth less than car fare. But in a moment, Mr. Moomer, through the offices of some black magic, is about to embark on a brand new career. And although he may never get a writing credit on The Twilight Zone, he's to become an integral character in it. First broadcast on May 23rd, 1963, written by Rod Serling and directed by David Butler. So a slightly meta opening narration by Rod Serling in his final opening narration of season four. And it's one where he talks about Julius Moomer not getting a job writing on the Twilight Zone, but becoming quite an integral character in it. So a slight verbal breaking of the fourth wall. And tonight's episode is directed by David Butler, a man who we haven't heard of before in the Twilight Zone and we won't hear of again, 
but he's certainly not a man we can ignore. When we talk about hard-working directors of the day, we've seen plenty. We've seen some who have directed hundreds of episodes of television by the time they get to the Twilight Zone. But I'm not sure that we've met anyone who has directed as many movies as David Butler before he got to the show. Because between 1927 and 1956, he directed more than 65 movies. Now granted, his career straddled the silent era and the transition into the talkies, but still, it's quite the resume. He was born in 1894 in San Francisco, so by the time he got to the Twilight Zone, he'd have been approaching 60. But for the young butler, show business was in his blood. His father was a stage director, and David actually began his show business career as an actor in a short film made in 1910 called The Face at the Window. And in the acting world, he was no slouch either, with an impressive 72 screen credits. He directed his first picture in 1927 and kept his hand in acting for a while, doing the two things at once until his final acting role in 1952. Now a lot of the movies that he directed and acted in are unfortunately not really in my area of expertise, but once he moved from the movies into television in the mid 50s, some of the titles become a bit more familiar, and David Butler continued to be as prolific as ever, directing all 26 episodes of the science fiction serial Captain Zero, 11 episodes of Wagon Train, and 58 episodes of Leave it to Beaver. And he kept on working until 1967, but what was the secret of his longevity in the business? He said, I made friends like buddies with my crew, with my cutters, with my actors and actresses. I didn't want to have any feeling that I was the big boss and they were nothing. I think that by doing that, I was able to last as long as I did. And I think that's a philosophy that Rod Serling would have been proud of. And after a 12 year retirement, David Butler passed away at the age of 84 in 1979. We're going to hear tonight about how the production of The Bard was a somewhat troubled one. It seemed to be an episode that Rod Serling believed in, but some of the other people involved in the show didn't. And to illustrate that, we need look no further than our first post credit scene, when Julius Moomer heads to a bookstore to find a book about black magic. But just before we get into that, I have to compliment the street scene where we see Julius Moomer walking to the bookstore because I'm always a sucker for a beautifully dressed American street scene and I think we have it here. The long staircases coming from each building and this cosy looking basement bookstore with a row of books on the railings outside. Absolutely beautiful. But it's once we get inside that I might become a little less appreciative of what's on screen. Well, what I have on my mind is, uh, what do you got on black magic? Black magic? I'm Julius Moomer from television. Now, uh, what is it you wanted? Black magic. Books on black magic. Oh, I'm afraid not. Um, I'm afraid that one eludes me. <laughs> Black art. This character of Sadie is played by Doro Merende, and I find her to be quite an interesting and curious supporting player, but I have to wonder what the gag is here. She's a bookseller who is obsessed with baseball and talks about it incessantly. And what? What is the punchline? I'm afraid I just don't find it funny. And Martin Grams Jr. documents in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic 
that Sam Kaplan from Cayuga Productions had some issues with the scene too. He writes that Sam Kaplan wrote to Rod Serling on June 25th, 1962 and said, we have so much going for us in the Bard that it is possible to sponsor an agency stereotypes in our script, vitiate the humour of the basic situation. I think if they were played straighter and more realistically, Moomer's and Shakespeare's dilemma would be that much more intriguing and equally comedic. The only other point I would like to make is that the female character in the bookshop seems to be a mirror image of Muma from the way she talks to the way she acts. I understand your desire to portray her as a character and a wild one at that, but since she sounds so much like Muma, I wonder if you wouldn't have more fun with an individual who was still way out, but possibly a beard-like creature who is the complete antithesis of Muma. I'm sure there are other possibilities which your fertile brain can uncover far better than I can. Granted, you agree that a counterpoint to Muma would be more effective than the prototype we have now. So I do wonder whether she was just originally this bumbling type of character and this baseball mad woman is why he changed the two. I don't know, I'm not too sure whether this character is the altered version or the original version, but either way, she just doesn't work for me. But what comes from this meeting is that Julius Moomer gets his book on black magic, and where does he decide to try and do his first spell? Standing in the middle of the aisle, on a bus of course. Va va voom, za za zoom, va va voom, ipsy dipsy, va va voom. This is public transportation, and there's rules about bugging the driver. Oh, me? You! Out! So after a spat with the bus driver, Julius then goes home and tries to carry on casting his spells. So while he does that, let's meet the man who played him. In his second and last Twilight Zone, Jack Weston takes on the role of Julius Moomer. Now some might say that the first Twilight Zone he had a role in, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, is one of the best that the Twilight Zone has to offer. And depending on how you feel about the Bard, perhaps he's an actor who has occupied both the top and bottom tiers of the show. So we'll see about that. So all of those years ago when I covered The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, did I do a bio on him? I can't remember so I might as well do one tonight. Having been born in 1924, Jack is touching 40 years old at this point, and he's well established in the business. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, and he started acting at the age of 10, and went on to join the children's theatre in that area. At the age of 19, though, he was drafted into the army, and when he came out of the army, he headed to New York and hit the bright lights of Broadway, and honed his craft even further, before hitting the small screen in 1951 with a one-off part in a TV show called Out There. But my favourite sounding part that he played in the early days of his screen career was in the TV show Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers, in which none other than Twilight Zone star Cliff Robertson played the title character, and Jack Weston played Wilbur Wormsy Wormser. And his career went on to span the decades in many of our favourite shows and movies too. And one of his final roles was in the much-loved film Dirty Dancing, and he passed away in 1996 at the age of 71. But how is he in this? You know, I think he's doing a fine comedy performance with some not very good comedy material. And I think Jack Weston is a good comic actor and he attacks the part with the enthusiasm that you would want. But with gags like these, he can only do so much. But the thing that interests me most about this character of Julius Moomer 
is something that people who have watched a lot of Sailing's non-Twilight Zone work will probably be aware of. And that is that this is not the first time this character has appeared on screen. It's the first time he's appeared on screen played by Jack Weston, but originally Julius Moomer appeared as a minor character in Rod Serling's 1959 episode of Playhouse 90. That time, he was played by Eddie Ryder. Now, The Velvet Alley is another Serling work looking at the trials and tribulations of the writer, but its tone is much more serious, and it is one of those projects where it's as if players from Rod Serling's future works all converge in this one place. The two main characters are played by Art Carney from Night of the Meek and Jack Klugman from numerous Twilight Zone episodes. But we also have Twilight Zone players like David White in there too. Leslie Nielsen has one of the leading parts as well and he would have parts in Night Gallery and The Loner. And the director of the project is Franklin J. Schaffner who would direct sailing penned episodes of Studio One like The Strike and The Arena and he would go on of course to direct Planet of the Apes. But sticking with our connection to the Bard, the Velvet Alley version of Julius Moomer, like I said, was played by Eddie Ryder and he would play Joseph Callahan in Mr. Dingle the Strong and also in Velvet Alley, credited simply as the actor, is one Bert Reynolds. So let's have a listen to that first Julius Moomer and compare him to the later one, because as you'll hear, it seems like he's been peddling that same idea for a few years. Oh, there's a telegram on your desk, Alder. Mr. Salter. Mr. Salter. And Zane Gray here would like an audience with you. Oh, oh, Max, I got it. Now, this time, I really got it. You're a fighter? Mm-hmm. The fighter's got a kid brother. And the kid brother's got an incurable disease. I mean, it can't be cured. He needs an operation desperately, right? Okay. So the doctor, the doctor comes to the fighter. He says, look, man, uh... Your brother's a pretty sick cat, Daddy. And I'm telling you, he's an operation like crazy. The doctor says this? Yeah. Who plays the doctor? Scatman Crothers. Yeah. The telegram, wait a minute. Uh, wait, let's see. Oh, oh, I got a change. A change. He's a cowboy. He's a fast gun. And he promises his girl that he won't use the gun again, you see? There's a lot of science fiction, Pete. There's this rocket man who promised his girl never to go up in a spaceship. What is it? uh, What's the matter, Max? You, You don't look so good. What is it? Oh, somebody just made a sale, Julius. Me, Max, 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 me, uh, the zombie story. Oh, it's a fantastic yarn. It's about, about this girl who marries a guy and he's walking around on his heels all the time, see? Everybody thinks he's punchy, but he isn't, he's dead. See, all the, all the times they're married, she don't know he's dead, you dig? <laughs> Julius, I'm sorry, it wasn't your day. It was somebody else's day. Somebody who's waited an awfully long time. Zombie story! I should have known it. The minute I wrote it, I knew it was sure fire. Absolute sure fire. Oh, it's a fantastic yarn, honey. It's about this dame who marries a guy who walks around on his heels all the time. She thinks he's punchy, but it turns out he's dead. All the time they're married, she don't know he's dead. Julius, let me put it to you this way. The zombie story didn't sell. So irrespective of my feelings on the Bard, I really love this piece of trivia that the humorous character in the very serious Velvet Alley that we only actually see for a short time gets fleshed out in his own episode of The Twilight Zone. Rod Serling creating a shared universe or a Serlingverse before it became all the rage. So after a little va-va-voom, we are finally introduced to the title character. I await your pleasure. Look, look, what do you want from me already? Pretty good, sir. Ask not what I want of thee, but what dost thou ask of William Shakespeare? Would you try that one again? It appears I must speak in the parlance of the time, your time. I simply said, good sir, it was you who conjured up me, and I'm at your service. What would you ask of me? Level with me, Pops, will you? You mean to say that you're the Shakespeare? 
you've been dead a thousand years. It is true, of course, but death is relative and need not be the end. You required a service of me, hence I am at your disposal. Now that Julius Moomer has William Shakespeare to be his ghostwriter, I'm sure hilarity will ensue. But while Shakespeare knocks out a few dramatic pieces for Moomer, let's take a look at some of the behind the scenes drama, because believe it or not, this infamous episode of The Twilight Zone is one that Rod Serling had to fight for. Now Martin Grams Jr. documents this in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, and I'm going to read this part verbatim because it's a, it's a list of things that the producer, Herbert Hirschman, disliked about the original script. And it says, in late July he sent Sailing a list of 16 concerns, most of which he felt were primary reasons for discarding the script altogether. The quiz show joke Moomer suggests early in the episode about the embalmer was too far out. Hirschman felt the joke about the onion soup was a bit heavy-handed. Hirschman disliked Moomer's comments to the little girl, referring to her as a dirty kid and suggesting she take a flying jump. Hirschman also requested Sailing change the scene with the sponsor, Shannon, by eliminating his cigar because the Twilight Zone might be sponsored by a cigarette sponsor. And Martin Grams Jr. makes the observation that Hirschman's attempt to revise the script to satisfy both the network and the sponsors was exactly what Serling was trying to spoof. But in response to this, Rod Serling wrote back to Herbert Hirschman and he said, By the time you'll have read what I've done on the board, I'm reasonably certain that you are as yet dissatisfied with it. Let me put it this way, Herb. It's a wild story. The dialogue is wild. The humour is far-fetched. The comedy is broad-stroked. I frankly wouldn't have it any other way. When we first launched this thing together, I told you that I would certainly not want you in the capacity of a rubber stamp to support my opinions constantly. You're too fine a talent, too sensitive a man, to have latched onto that kind of a position, which would be untenable to you. But I also said that there would be moments when I would have to get up on my hind legs and say no more. And I'm afraid this is the situation with the bard. This is one I'm afraid I must ask you to swallow wholesale and then spit it out. But swallow it, you guys must. Please forgive my perfunctory hard-nosedness about this one, but I can't rewrite it anymore. Not a scene, not a line. But Martin Graham's documents that Sailing did actually go on to do some more rewrites. So what an interesting situation we've got here. Let's not sugarcoat things. The Bard is one of the most maligned Twilight Zones out there. And as Martin Grams Jr. points out, Sailing is getting notes from Hirschman that are in the same vein as what he was trying to spoof with this episode. But I think to be fair to Hirschman, there's a sense here that he just didn't think it was very funny or very good. So this is probably one of the rare occasions when I would side with the person trying to interfere with Sailing's work than Sailing himself. But that said, I also admire Sailing drawing a line in the sand and saying this is as far as I'm willing to go. It needs to sink or swim on its own. And if the boy have not a woman's gift to rain a shower of commanded tears, an onion will do well for such a shift. Onion? Sponsor conflict. Concur. Could we make it, uh, turnip? Solid thinking. Turnip. Very sociable. Everybody knows about turnips. You say turnip to the lady in Dubuque, she's with you. I like it. If there is a scene that I do like in the Bard, it's the studio executives chewing over the piece that Mooma has brought them, thinking of how they can change pieces of the prose to please the sponsors. It raised the smile at least, and Sailing is clearly having some fun with this. And in the real world, even the critical Herbert Hirschman was starting to come around. Martin Grams Jr. documents that halfway through filming, Herbert Hirschman commented favourably to Sailing. The bard seems to be going well, 
and certainly the people on the stage as well as those who have seen the dailies find it amusing. And even the network executives were having fun with Sailing's attempts to poke jabs at television sponsors and their advertising agencies. I believe I finished this last sequence, Mr. Moomer. Oh, good, good, good. Ah, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Oh, Will Booby, you got such a thing with words. <laughs> it comes from working in an attic, Mr. Moomer. A little voice deep inside prods me and keeps saying, Go, William, go. Oh, 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 great, great, only great. <laughs> the Shannon Food Corporation presents <laughs> The Tragic Cycle, written by Julius Moomer. <laughs> From an original story by Julius Moomer, with additional dialogue by Julius Moomer. William Shakespeare is played by John Williams and he was born in 1903 in a place that sounds so English that even I'm reaching for a cup of tea. He was born in Chalfont St Giles in Buckinghamshire. Like his co-star Jack Weston, he started acting early in a production of Peter Pan when he was 13 years old. But in the mid-1920s, he left the UK for the US and he too hit the New York stage and became a busy stage actor for 30 years. So he did do the occasional on-screen part, but in the mid-1950s he shifted his focus to mainly screen roles and this allowed him to create a somewhat signature role when he was acting on Broadway in the 1953 to 1954 season, he played Chief Inspector Hubbard in the stage play of Dial M for Murder. Then in 1954, he again played Chief Inspector Hubbard in the Alfred Hitchcock movie Dial M for Murder. He then reprised the role in a 1958 television movie of Dial M for Murder directed by George Schaffer. Now I do love things like this where one actor plays the same role multiple times in multiple mediums or multiple versions, but Dial M for Murder is a bit of a rabbit hole in itself, with several versions being produced over the years, with all of the other Chief Inspector Hubbards having to live up to John Williams' version. And while his role in The Twilight Zone may be in one of its most maligned episodes, John Williams returned to the sailing verse in one of the creepiest episodes of The Night Gallery, where he played the colonel in the episode The Doll. I mean, they're already talking to me about two and a half hour specs, movie contracts, maybe a Broadway musical. <laughs> I love you. Put me on the stage. I'll be a rage. Julius Moomer will play for you. Racky sack, I'm flush. I think by this point, I'm looking at the screen with the same weariness that Shakespeare has when he looks at Julius Moomer. But I suppose if I'm being generous, the next scene I at least get some enjoyment from, and it's when we show up to the rehearsal of one of Moomer's ghost-written shows and who should be one of the actors, but Bert Reynolds, channeling Marlon Brando. All right, people, we'll pick it up now. Scene two of act two. Ah, Felicia. Now remember, Felicia, at this moment, life and death is waiting for you out in that hallway. This is unequivocal. It is life or it is death. When Rocky comes through that door... Mm, uh, Charlie. Uh, question. Uh, question, Rocky? Yeah, I mean, what is my uh, tertiary motivation here? I mean, like, I walk through the door and uh, I see her. Why? Why what, Rocky? What's the question? Exactly. What is the question? I mean, like, any slob can walk through a door. I mean, like, I do it every day. But, uh, well, now, maybe I shouldn't walk through the door at that moment. So I gotta ask myself, 
would I walk through that door? It's on the basis of that answer that I find my motivation. So the question is, what's my motivation? Whenever we get a movie star of the caliber of Burt Reynolds who did the Twilight Zone but then went on to become huge, I always say at this point we know where they ended up so it's more interesting to see where they were right now. Because with 185 credits to his name there is no doubt that Burt Reynolds was a hard working actor of the day. But how many of those credits had he clocked up at this point? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, because having been born in 1936, Reynolds would have been about 27 at this point, and I kind of like his origin story, because in school he was a celebrated athlete with a bright future as a pro footballer, but after being injured in a car accident, which put an end to his football career, he dropped out of college and headed to New York to be an actor, and after waiting tables for a while and getting the occasional job in television and theatre, he was signed to a television contract and started on that well-worn circuit that all of the other hard-working actors of the day trod, with roles in Playhouse 90, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and a recurring role playing Quint in Gunsmoke. So in the five years since he made his television debut to this episode of The Twilight Zone, Burt Reynolds had racked up a fair few television roles and would no doubt have had experience of the kind of actor that he was portraying here. And in the Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery quotes the producer John Conwell who said, Burt Reynolds had a small part that was supposed to be like Marlon Brando. He was an old friend of mine and I asked him if he would do it because he looked very much like Brando at that time and did a marvellous imitation of him. It always fascinates me the difference between the method type actor, the ones who employ all of these different ways to elevate and inform their performance, and the actors who simply turn the performance on when they turn up for work. And there is that famous story about Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier who shared the screen in the film Marathon Man. In the movie, Hoffman's character was supposed to have stayed up for three days. So when he came to set and remarked to Laurence Olivier that he too had been up for three days to prepare for the part, Olivier replied, why don't you just try acting dear boy? Now Dustin Hoffman has debunked that story since saying that he was actually only joking with Olivier and what he meant was he'd been partying all weekend. But I think we all see the point here, the method of those from the Lee Strasberg school versus the honed skill of someone who has trodden the boards day after day in something like the Royal Shakespeare Company. Now I take no pleasure in pulling an episode of The Twilight Zone apart because I know that every episode of the show, if not someone's favourite, will also be beloved by someone at least. But even if you disagree with me on this one, I don't think anyone can disagree with the assessment that there are bad episodes of The Twilight Zone. It's just which ones are the bad ones that is where we will differ. So if you've been sitting wishing that I was praising your favourite episode, The Bard, then I have something that will balance this out a little bit for you. Longtime friend of the show, Al Scherzmer, who is a collaborator over in the After Hours Club, host of presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, is actually quite a fan of this much maligned episode and he's penned an article in its defense. And Al has given me permission to read some of that out here. And I think Al's summing up should hopefully raise a smile for all of you Bard fans. And he says, if the Bard does not resonate with you, I think there are three main reasons. The first is the musical score, which plays like a series of sustained rim shots, cheapening the humor that it means to emphasize turning a satire into a farce. Imagine the episode without it and see if your opinion rises. The second is the gags, as if Rod, in detailing the cheapness of this culture, fell victim to the cheapness himself. Another meta moment in which he seems to fear he isn't playing to the Lady in Dubuque, 
After giving us such subtly comic lines as it's so archaic language-wise and we can't live with the suicide, there's no need to add Julia's fainting spell, Shakespeare forgetting the rest of to be or not to be, or even his lots of luck line. Though that one serves a purpose, the third is the ending which falls flat as Julius conjures up George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Daniel Boone, Pocahontas and others to write an American history piece. In The Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickrey rightly notes that one feels it would have been more logical for Julius to call upon Mark Twain, Bret Hart, James Fenimore Cooper, Stephen Crane and Ambrose Bierce, since his problem wasn't an inability to research, but rather an inability to write. But more than that, the problem is that Julius is not really the main character of the piece and should not be providing the ending. After all, the episode is entitled The Bard, not Moomer. While Julius is the same hopeless chump from beginning to end, it is Shakespeare who tries to defend his drama from the modern world, only to be reduced to the vernacular at the end. Perhaps a better ending would be to have Shakespeare stick around to get ground down by the times, a willing collaborator with Julius for any hack job they are asked to turn out. However, Rod did tell Herbert Hirschman, I can't rewrite her anymore, not a scene, not a line, so far be it from me to attempt my own rewrite. Even as it is, Mark Scott Zickrey considers The Bard a delightful episode, and I agree. For those who can't see it, I recommend a few more viewings, and then maybe a few more. And lots of luck. Hey, Will! 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 Hey, wait a minute, Will! Wait a minute! What are you doing? You're gonna ask up the whole deal? What am I gonna say to him in there? What am I gonna tell him? Tell them simply that foolery, sir, does walk about the orb like the sun. It shines everywhere. Act 3, scene 1, Twelfth Night. And you, Julius Moomer, foolish mortal who could have covered himself with a cloak of immortality. To you, Julius Moomer, who has succumbed to the rankest compound of villainous smell that ever offended nostril. To you, Julius Moomer, lots of luck. So although people seemed to warm to the bard halfway through production, Apparently the network was dissatisfied with the finished production and Boris Kaplan personally sat in to make changes to try and curb the broadness in the actual episode. So I think if there's anyone who deserves to have a pop at the television system, it's Rod Serling. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know when I say that The Twilight Zone was created in order for Rod Serling to be able to tell the socially conscious stories that he wanted to tell but couldn't. He couldn't because he kept coming up against executives and sponsors whose main concern was profit over art. And if there's something that I like in the Bard it's the occasional well-aimed shots fired at the executives and the admin. But while there could certainly be a show or movie made about these things and there has been since, I feel the Bard works better as a one-liner than almost an hour of unfunny comedy. These studio executives are so dumb that they'd even give Shakespeare notes. That's it. That's the gag. That's the one-liner. Enough to raise a chuckle if it's said to you after you've received some particularly silly notes from the studio when you're on set, but not so much if it's stretched out to the point of just being tedious. So here we are at the end of season 4, a season where the running time of the episodes has always been a consideration when we appraise them, and for the most part I've found it to be a non-issue, something that I can easily shrug off, and in fact I like this as part of the lore of the show. So am I glad that season 5 returns to the half hour runtime? Yes I am. But am I glad that there was one season of The Twilight Zone that was a little bit different? I kind of like that too. I remember hearing a particularly outspoken Twilight Zone commentator dismissing this season wholesale 
and at the time I hadn't seen most of it, so I didn't really have anything to say on the matter, but now I have, and I find that level of dismissal ridiculous, and I'll talk a bit more about that in the next episode when I sum up the season. So while I find runtime a bit of a non-issue, what I will say is that it certainly amplifies the weaknesses of bad Twilight Zone comedy episodes. Over time I've grown to have at least some fondness for episodes like Mr. Beavis. I don't find them particularly funny but I like the heart and it has the good grace to get out of the way in under 25 minutes. But if it was double that time, I don't think I'd be able to give it that chance and I don't think I'd ever be in such a forgiving mood that I would give it just one more shot. I can get on board with good drama or science fiction that's maybe a little too padded, but I just can't get on board with bad comedy that is. I dream of Genie, the Bard, same problem. Any goodwill that I might have had for the good parts just gets lost because the episodes just can't go the distance. But to end on a slightly more positive note, if there is a kernel of something that interests me about the Bard, it's how while it would have been easy for Serling to just take pop shots at the executives and the admin, and he certainly does just that, he also swipes at the clueless writers full of nonsensical ideas and the pompous actors with their ridiculous methods. Shakespeare is a symbol of unfettered art, and as Serling sees it, Everybody in his time has a part to play in diluting that art, so nobody is safe from a swipe from sailing in the bard, and while the rapping may be painfully unfunny, at least some of those swipes are well observed. Mr. Julius Moomer, a streetcar conductor with delusions of authorship, and if the tale just told seems a little tall, remember a thing called poetic license, and another thing called the Twilight Zone. I thought it would take me a year, but it took me two. But we have finally come to the end of season four. So we only have one more season to go of the Twilight Zone. I, uh, it's kind of a bittersweet feeling because it means that we are almost at the end. But I wouldn't get too downhearted because you know at the speed I go, it's going to take probably two or three years to get those episodes out so we still have some time to go but you know me I like to finish off each season with a bit of a summing up of the season that we've just seen and I like to get you involved so I'll be doing a kind of informal chat podcast with another Twilight Zone podcast host and I would like you to get involved by maybe sending in a clip of around five minutes give or take I'm not too strict on that you know if you've got a lot to say then I'm not going to cut you off, but just, you know, just use that as a rough guide. And it can be about whatever you want in season four. It can be about your favorite episode. It could be about your least favorite episode. You can give us a top five. You can talk about the season as a whole. Whatever you want to talk about in season four, just record that onto a clip. You can use your phone. You can use your computer. Whatever is easiest for you, and I will take care of getting it converted and into the show. But if you can get those clips to me, bye. Hello everyone, this is Tom from the future, just interrupting Tom from the past for just one moment. And just a little peek behind the curtain. Episodes of the Twilight Zone podcast are not necessarily recorded all in one go, and there are certain things that I wait till the very end for. Uh, just in case I get things at the very end. Things like new patrons, iTunes reviews, or uh, feedback. So I record the bulk of it and, uh, and wait for those things and maybe record a little bit at the end to introduce those. So when I mentioned the deadline for feedback for the Season 4 episode, uh, initially uh, I waited for a few days while I just waited for those last things to come through but then I got a cold. So the date that I gave for the deadline to feedback uh, is now a bit out of date because I was waiting for my cold to clear to be able to, you know, introduce these last things. 
and unfortunately it's taken a little longer than I hoped. So this episode has been in the can for quite a long time while I waited for this to pass. But I don't want to hold on any longer, so I'm just going to get it out. Uh, so the deadline for feedback for the season 4 wrap-up show is now going to be the 20th of November. And that can be a clip where you talk about your favourites of the season, your least favourites of the season, your top 5, whatever you want that to be. But send your clip to tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com and I will put it into that season 4 end show. So... And I'm going to leave the Patreon mentions until that season 4 wrap-up show as well. Because right now my voice isn't great. And you know, I want to give those guys uh, the respect they deserve. And also, I know my patrons are waiting for their monthly commentary. I'm just waiting for this to pass. So it's going to be a little bit late. But once it is, I will get right onto that. Okay, so... Our good friend Zach Moore has sent in feedback for every episode of Season 4 of The Twilight Zone. And they might not have been in every episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. He's missed some out, but then he's doubled up in the next episode. That kind of thing. So right now he's going to cap off his coverage of season four. So Zach, take it away. Hey, Tom and listeners. Zach Moore here back with my thoughts on the final two episodes of season four. Passage on the Lady Anne and the Bard. Passage on the Lady Anne is kind of boring, but having listened to your podcast about it, Tom, I do have a new appreciation for it. Uh, I, I even think I said in my comment on the Patreon, boring. <laughs> and uh, it had some good elements there. You know, I mean, a potentially ghost ship. Don't know how that young couple got on that ship to begin with, though. You think they kind of keep that trip off the books or something. But I don't know. It, it just didn't really... Long periods of time happened without anything Twilight Zone happening. So it was like, what's going on here? And... It seems like what what did the Twilight Zone make her disappear in the middle there when he was running around the ship looking for her and then he comes back and she's been waiting in his room the whole time. I, I yeah, them reconnecting. I didn't quite buy. I, I did buy their uh, drama again. I, I guess I'm just so pre-programmed to think 1950s 60s television has this perfect Leave It to Beaver family dynamics going on. So whenever the Twilight Zone does something. It's like kind of raw emotionally. You're like, wow, okay. People having problems in their marriage and, and, and they're trying to go on a honeymoon that didn't magically solve their problems at first. And so they're still like, it's not the solution they were looking for, which is very true to real life, I think. So I uh, responded well to that. Very uncomfortable, those scenes uh, with them early in the episode. But yeah, after that, eh, you know, it is nice to see the returning cast of uh, characters of previous uh, Twilight Zone actors and actresses uh, who have been in previous episodes. So the, the elderly uh, residents of the of the cruise and um, yeah it was to me low middle tier high bottom tier it, it is one that I had seen before so I, and I also remember thinking it was boring then probably a memory for me is much younger because you watch as a kid you really have no appreciation or, or, or concept of what they're talking about about the world moving on and the way of life kind of thing and so yeah listening to your podcast about it I, I, I do have a new appreciation for it so so next time around when I watch it all, probably have more of an open mind. I didn't remember the the ending being so ambiguous. It is interesting that the the, the short story has a more firm ending. I, I I do like the more ambiguous. They just kind of sail off into the fog, and and who knows what happened to them, right? Um, maybe they truly did get transported into the twilight zone. But but yeah, there you have it. The passage on the lady Anne, and I must say, probably my opinion of it got raised. <laughs> In comparison to the final episode of the season, The Bard, which is the worst episode of The Twilight Zone. Like, I would argue that the bewitching pool is sometimes so bad it's good and also has that shade of real-world drama with, you know, parents getting a divorce and stuff. It's like, whoa, okay, this is the 50s. I didn't expect the 60s. But, God, The Bard is terrible. And nothing dates more like bad comedy painful to get through one gag after another like these scenes go on and on and i guess it's kind of cool that uh, the guy that plays william shakespeare is john williams not the john williams but you know a john williams an actor not the famous composer but man just <sighs> miss after miss with this at uh, burt reynolds doing a uh, marlon brando impression was probably my favorite part of the episode but wow it's pretty rough pretty rough and a sad note to end the fourth season on I think everyone would agree 
but the fourth season is probably the worst season of the show uh and then and then the bard is the worst episode of this season i dream genie is not far behind uh but still more enjoyable for the for the performance of um the main character all that to say i, I do think this is clearly rod serling commenting on interference as a writer that he's experienced through studios producers etc uh, he is the William Shakespeare of this story. Not not to say that he's self-aggrandizing because he was always very self-depreciating, right? <laughs> if anything, right? He is that character of this story, though. Someone who's trying to put out great work and it just keeps getting put down and down and down to the point where it's unrecognizable. Now, as all lifelong fans of The Twilight Zone, I think we all feel that that's not what happened uh, the majority of the time on the show, but he clearly experienced that in other ways. And that that's kind of what led him to genre writing. So he could communicate the themes and things he wanted to communicate without having to be told no by the censors or whoever. Right. So there is that element to it. So if there's one element there, this is him trying to bring that to light. Although the comedy approach and the mechanics of the story didn't work <laughs> in my opinion, but Hey, uh, when you write as many episodes, of the show that he did, he's allowed to have a few misses, and this is one of those misses. I'm gonna be hard pressed to think of a worse episode than the Bard. Maybe if it were half an hour, it it, it would have just kind of breezed by. But the fact that it goes on so long and is so not funny, <laughs> you know. But it is nice to see the uh, the angry uh, one of the more angry neighbors from Monsters Do on Maple Street again as the main character. I. Uh, forgotten that he was in more than one twilight zone so it's it's uh i always in my mind's eye i always see him in that hawaiian shirt he had in that episode so see him in a, in a suit and tie here was it's kind of off-putting but uh but hey yeah if you want a whole new appreciation for passage on the lady Anne, watch the bard immediately after and your opinion of the first will raise <laughs> compared to the latter so there you have it y'all and uh, i have now sent in feedback for every single episode this season so i feel quite accomplished and so thanks for opening up the uh, the airwaves to us all tom and we will see you guys in the fifth dimension